and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Raisa Kabir, and today's guest is Dr. Mushtaq Bilal. Mushtaq is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Southern Denmark. He earned his PhD in Comparative Literature from Binghamton University. He works on simplifying the process of academic writing and writes about ethical use of artificial intelligence for academic purposes. In this interview, we talk about how medical students and academic writers can utilize ChatGPT and other AI tools efficiently in their writing process. We also chat about addressing the barriers in academic writing and some ethical considerations of using AI-powered apps. I learned a lot and will certainly be using some of Mushtaq's tip in my own writing. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, Mushtaq. So we're going to start off with asking something that we ask all of our guests. Can you tell us about your path and how you eventually came to the intersection of academic writing and AI? Yeah, thank you for having me, Raisa. Uh, <clears throat> I had I submitted my dissertation last year in April, and after that, um, my wife asked me to, to create an account on Twitter. And I did create an account and uh, I didn't know what to do with it. So, you know, it sat there and then my wife made me tweet and I didn't know what to write about, you know. So then I started reading it, you know, I was reading Twitter and, you know, tried to see what Twitter was all about. And I had my PhD in, in the 19th century novel. My dissertation is on the 19th century uh, Urdu novel in in, during the time of you know British Raj in India, and I said to myself that hey, Mr. you have a PhD in literary genres, so how about you take Twitter as a literary genre since it's a very you know it's a text-based platform. And I started reading about Twitter and how Twitter works, what kind of content gets great, how you know what kind of content gets you know traction, and how content gets created. And it was like I, I read about it for quite a few months and I, then I started writing about it. Then um, I, I had been writing for quite a few months before. Um, so from April to August, I was writing on Twitter. In August, I moved to Pakistan to take up a teaching job because my visa had expired in the U.S., and then I was teaching this um, one-on-one course, like uh, not one-on-one, but very beginner level course on academic writing. And I thought to myself that, you know, I, I want to teach my students how to use Zotero. And because Zotero is a good reference manager, it's free. And, you know, uh, I wanted my, I mean, most of them would not need, you know, unless they go to grad school, but I thought, you know, it's a good tool. At least they should know the name of, of this tool of the reference manager, or at least they should know that there is a thing called reference and citation manager. So I prepared a tutorial and then um, I didn't have access to the university, you know, the LMS, the learning management system. So I thought I'll just put it out on, you know, put it up on Twitter. And that tutorial got like a million views and, you know, it went sort of, you know, like viral at the time. And I, which was very surprising for me because I had, you know, just think of it that, you know, you're writing about not academic writing, you're writing about not how research gets done, but you're writing about how references, how you can automate references. You know, it's like niche within a very small niche. And that went viral. And then I did uh, quite a few tutorials about on Zotero. And from Zotero, then I thought that, you know, people were, people liked this, this, this kind of tool. So then I started exploring other tools that could be integrated into Zotero. And then I started writing those tutorials, you know, pretty lengthy tutorials. But the good thing was that I would write a tutorial and the next day it would be discussed in um, in universities in Denmark, in Sweden, in the US, in India, you know, that was very, very, you know, that was a very different kind of response that, you know, that, that I would receive because if I wrote a paper and I, you know, last year I, I published three, three journal articles and I don't think three people have read them. So, you know, and it takes months and months to to write a journal article, seek you know reviewers' feedback, revise it, you know, uh, 
redo it and re-envision, re-imagine. And it takes a lot of work and the feedback is very slow. But on Twitter, the feedback was like really immediate. And that got me thinking that I can have a different kind of impact than what I had imagined earlier. So, you know, you, you do a PhD, you imagine the kind of impact you'll make is through your teaching or through your research. And that one thread was quite a bit of a, you know, an eye opener. Uh, and so I started, so that's how I, I became interested in these, you know, intersection of AI and academic writing, because I started writing about apps that could be integrated with, um, with Zotero. And then that's how I started exploring these apps, which some of which are um, AI powered. And then in February, I wrote a thread on how to use ChatGPT. So by then, you know, ChatGPT was all the rage, which and it still is. So a lot of people were worried about or thinking about how to use ChatGPT, what to do with it. And I wrote a thread on, I think it, it was the first week of February when I wrote a thread on how to use ChatGPT, not to create content, but to create structure. So that thread went again that was like massively viral thread like 7 million views and you know and and then that that got me thinking that you know there is a lot of interest in using this tool but not a lot of people and especially not a lot of academics know how to how to best use it and what are the limitations of this this tool and since then you know once you start writing um, about something like this then you don't have to you know you you have to go and look for content, but when something is this, when people are so much interested in something, people tell you what to write about. So then, you know, that's how I I ended up here and that's how we are talking. That is that is really cool. There are so many nuggets that you dropped there, like using Chat GPT for like organization versus content, um, which we will circle back when we go to the ethics part of our discussion. But I wanted to gear this interview towards audience, academic writers, medical students that potentially can utilize AI for some of the things that you were talking about, right? Like using Zotero, for example, you were saying in the initial days for automating reference citations. I honestly didn't know that until you mentioned it today. So I'm going to check that out after this interview. Um, so looking back at your career a little bit, it looks like you currently have like a workshop or tutorial geared towards becoming an efficient academic writer. And we can talk yeah. more about that at the end. Sure. But before that, could you please give us a brief overview on how to even get started on using the AI apps that we have at our disposal? Uh, sorry, could you repeat that? How do I or how does one anybody how does one anybody and i am thinking more so honestly about myself as a medical yeah. student i mean if, if you look at my twitter bio or if you go to my linkedin you'll see that you know my the first sentence that i have in my bio is that i simplify the process of academic writing and there is no way for me to emphasize the word process here on linkedin or twitter but you know it, it, at least it's it's emphasized in my mind and if you look at my twitter feed or my linkedin posts I do a lot of threads. I mean, I think all of my work is on the process. I'm I'm really, you know, um, I'm very invested in the process of how writing gets done. I, I'm not interested in the kind of product get gets made, you know, because this is my my, you know, this is my firm belief that product is inevitable. If you know the process, the product is inevitable. You you don't have to worry about the product. So, for example, uh, the process is that you um, you took an admission into a graduate program, into a PhD program, and the PhD program is making you undergo a certain process. And the program has complete faith in itself, and the program has complete faith in itself that at the end of the, uh, the, the program, Raisa will have sufficient knowledge to be called, you know, a PhD and, you know, XYZ. Yeah? So... The, the program doesn't worry about the product. The program worries about the how many years you have to take graduate courses, how many, you know, you have to take, you know, comprehensive exams. 
this is a process that you have to go through. And now you can be like, hey, I'm very smart. I can do this in one year. The grad school will say, well, you know, you're very smart, but you still have to go through these many number of years because there is a method to the madness, you know. You have to undergo that kind of, you know, don't want to say grind, but you have to undergo that process. And this is really important because if you have a good, decent understanding of the process of writing, then you can choose which tools to automate that part of the process. So, for example, um, I started writing on Twitter because I read um, I read somewhere on on Twitter by one of these writers, um, you know, social media, uh, social content writers. So he said that pick a skill, pick a thing that you are good at, and start writing about it. And during my graduate program, I had taken a lot of, you know, writing workshops. I would take any, you know, any chance that I would get. And, and I took dissertation boot camps. And there uh, we had this teacher um, instructor, Robert Danberg. And he, he, he had done his PhD in the pedagogy of writing. So he would tell us that, you know, he would explain the process. And then I would read a lot of books on the process by, by writers like um, Paul Sylvia and Joanne Bolker and a bunch of others. So if you have a decent understanding of the writing process, now, how do we have a decent understanding of the writing process? One of the ways we can do, we can do this, or one of the ways of going about it is to read how, read the writing routines of other writers. So, for example, uh, somebody like uh, okay, let's let me think of somebody, some like Peter Albo. Peter Albo was um, is is a university teacher, and he he used to teach at um, University of Massachusetts Amherst. So <clears throat> he says there is this technique called free writing or zero drafting. So you don't start writing your first draft, which usually everybody does. You know, they start writing and then they're, they're like, oh, this is, my, this is going to be my first draft. And he said that instead of doing first drafts, why don't we start with a zero draft or free writing? So free writing is, <clears throat> is, is an exercise where you start writing without paying attention to the grammar, spelling, punctuation, organization, structure, anything. You just start putting words on the screen, yeah? Your aim is to put as many words as possible on the screen or on the page. And the idea of the zero draft is, uh, doing a zero draft is to process your thoughts. It's to, because, you know, you have thoughts, you have, you have things to say, but those things have to be distilled into prose, into readable prose. You know, and there are like several steps and stages to, to this distillation. Like you will distill alcohol or, you know, you will make a beer or, you know, wine. So there are diff different stages and if you, you can't really, you know, you can speed up the process, but you ha still have to follow the process. You can't skip mm -hmm. a step. So free writing is something that, um, that I'm a big fan of. And I always do an exercise whenever I run a workshop. So you set a timer for like 25 minutes and then you free write for, you know, without without worrying about punctuation or grammar. And then you have a large mass of, you know, words, like 3,000 words. And then, you know, the, the next stage is to clean it up. Or you have to do this, you do this for several weeks, and then you'll have like hundreds of pages of zero drafts, out of which not everything would be, you know, useful, but some of it will will be useful. And so cleaning it up is like you read them again. Uh, this is this is useful to read your own thoughts, um, but when ChatGPT came along, I thought that you know this stage of the process of the writing process can be automated. This you know this labor, this academic labor could be outsourced to ChatGPT, uh, and that's why you know I, I I I've written it several times on Twitter and LinkedIn that you know don't outsource your thinking to ChatGPT, but outsource your labor. Yeah. So if you have a large mass of text, say you have like 1,000 words of zero draft with no structure, nothing, no punctuation. And I've done this exercise myself and I do this exercise, you know, in my workshops. And you take that zero draft and you put it, feed it into, run it through your chat, through chat GPT with this prompt. So this is a prompt that I often use. I tell chat GPT, I prime it first, you know, it's like, 
making an introduction. So I tell ChatGPT that I'm going to give you a zero draft, a free writing sample or free writing um, passage, extract of my writing with no organization and blah, blah, blah. Will you be able to rewrite it for me with, you know, structure and organization? And then ChatGPT says, of course. And then, um, then I feed it the, um, the zero writing draft with this prompt that, Please rewrite the following. Uh, please remove redundant words and phrases from the following passage and make it cohesive and coherent. Mm. Uh, and you know, and within 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 a few seconds, you get a very decent presentable draft of your writing. So before ChatGPT, yeah, came along, I I used to do it myself, and you know, this is how people used to teach others. And so this is this is one one aspect of academic writing where you where you have very low stakes where you start writing very low stakes and then you speed up the process very fast yeah yeah this, so, is, so this is like yeah go ahead sorry so so this is like you know this is like this is like having a good understanding of the stages of the writing process and then figuring out which tool to use to automate or make that stage efficient you know Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, my tutorial in my, my tutorial is titled become an efficient academic writer. I'm not telling you to become a great academic writer or, you know, awesome academic writer. I'm just trying to tell you that you, uh, you will do whatever you're already doing, but after this tutorial, you will be able to do that in a fraction of a time that you would, you already spend. I am, uh, my mind is completely blown right now because <laughs> I think, you know, in high school and college and college writing classes, they do talk about that concept of free writing, but it's that exercise of like taking that free writing and then organizing it into your introduction, method, your body, discussion, conclusion, all of that. But I had absolutely zero idea that I could use Chad GPT to be like, hey, here's my word vomit clean it up and tell me what you think it is and give me a cohesive paragraph out of this. This is amazing. Oh my gosh. And I think that 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 writer's blog that I have personally, where I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm writing, but none of this makes sense. Especially like when you're like writing a daunting paper with so many references, like for example, the intro to any research paper, I can just see myself like doing that to chat GPT and be like, Hey, like, here's my word vomit. Please tell me what you think. This is amazing. Thank you. Mushtaq, for that little tip. Of course. Yeah. I, um, I've done several threads on it. <laughs> so you can <laughs> go and, you know, copy the prompt also. <laughs> um, so, so that's chat GPT. How obviously there are other tools out there to kind to get organized in your writing how do you keep up to date on the apps? Um, and you said that like you have to understand the process first. You have to know the process first to know how you can get better, to know how to be more efficient. How do you usually stay up to date on the apps? And how do you recommend students to like explore the AI apps and the other avenues that are available to us? Yeah. How do I keep up? I don't think, I mean, there is a lot of hype around AI, but if you cut through the noise, you will see that there aren't too many original apps, you know, being made available or being made, you know. There are very few original apps. Most of it are like, you know, incremental and, you know, marginally incremental. So there's ChatGPT and then somebody would, you know, use um, the GPT-4 model and then they will say, hey, um, you can't read a PDF in ChatGPT, but I will let you read a PDF. You know, this is a, you know, they, they put their interface over GPT-4 and voila, you have a new app. This is marginal, incremental. This is, I'm not saying this is not very important work. This is absolutely important work. But then this is incremental and, you know, marginally incremental. So I don't think it's very hard to keep up with these apps because there is there is a lot of noise and hype. But if you cut through that, you know, you'll see very few apps are useful. And I think people find my content useful because I... I on a daily basis, I cut through that noise. So, you know, people tell me that, hey, 
every day I get like five to six messages that I have this, I made this app. Can you write about it? Then, you know, I, I test it out and, you know, it doesn't, you know, stand. It doesn't answer my question or it doesn't work properly or it's not functional enough. And uh, people are, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this term called MVP, uh, minimum viable product. So you have the minimum viable product and, you know, you put it out so that you can iterate and, you know, you can improve on it. Well, it needs, sometimes, you know, it, <laughs> the level of improvement is, is, is a lot that is needed. So this, I think, this is my, my own understanding that people follow me on Twitter or my, people follow, people find value in my work because I only write about the apps that have, that, that many people will find useful. And of course, I, when I, when I write about an app, it's, you know, I'm also writing to seek feedback on, you know, because I'm a humanities scholar and I don't do any quantitative data analysis or systematic reviews like you folks in the medical field would do. So I I want to test out, you know, how my colleagues in other fields are thinking or what they're thinking or how they feel about this kind of tool. So I, I write about these apps on a fairly regularly basis and then only the apps that get overwhelmingly positive approval across disciplines and fields and geo geographies only those apps you know make it to my tutorial so that's how you know like shifting uh no uh, what's the what's the what's the expression sifting needle from the haystack i think it's um yeah yeah something like that there yeah you're right <laughs> Uh, I, I just want to, the other thing that I want to say about keeping up with it, once you, once you have built, once you have built enough of, of enough following on, on LinkedIn or Twitter, then people, you know, then people tell you that how the field is, you know, um, moving, moving forward. People will get in touch with you because they're like, Hey, you have, you write about it a lot and you seek a lot of feedback from people. So could you write about it so that we can seek feedback? And I, and I do that like yesterday, you know, yesterday I wrote about Odamic and this audio app that you also mentioned. So, you know, this is one way of, you know, seeking feedback and you know, helping colleagues who are making these apps to, to iterate. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, doing the work of sifting through all of the apps for us. So we know what's currently useful. Um, on that note, you mentioned Odemic, uh, which is, if I understand it correctly, can be useful for people who have dyslexia so that you are basically listening to the paper instead of reading it visually what about some other barriers to academic writing that you currently see um that can be potentially overcome by using ai powered apps like odemic or do you like know of any existing ones currently other than odemic yeah i mean the the idea of biases in academic writing goes beyond you know beyond beyond ai powered apps beyond artificial intelligence the biases are are there because the biases have been baked into those systems. You know, it's not, the biases don't exist in isolation. So those biases, I don't think those biases could, could be undone using an AI powered app or they, they, they will, or an artificial intelligence can do, you know, drastically something different or artificial intelligence could do something drastically uh, new. I, I'm not sure of that in terms of, you know, democratizing the field or, or you know, you know, uh, leveling the playing field, you know, so to speak. But, I, and I say this because I have worked in, you know, I, I'm during my PhD um, and after that I worked with, um, with an academic journal as an editor and the problems are like problems have to, and there are problems of access, first of all. So the access to academic resources is gated. You know, you have to jump through hoops to get a grant or get to get an admission in a in a in a university, and you know, 
only then will you be able to to work on a certain project or only then will you be able to get trained enough to 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 create scholarship yeah um had i stayed in i was i was in pakistan in 2014 i had um, taken admission into a, a phd program at a pakistani university and i didn't like the program because it was not you know rigorous enough not you know interesting enough and i dropped out um because i thought that you know i'll i'll go and do i'll apply for a grant and you know go and do go to, you know go to the us and do a phd from there but if i didn't have this kind of sense this sense of you know climbing up the academic social ladder then i would have stayed there and you know my training would have been like many of my colleagues and i used to joke with them that you know we are not going to become doctors we'll after this phd this kind of phd will become quacks so this is like this is a, this this barrier is has nothing to do with artificial intelligence then there are um barriers in terms of gender and you know race and ethnicity and you know many other factors what i would say though that artificial intelligence could be used by by folks like like us on the peripheries of you know global academia to it could be i mean these apps could be used creatively to 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 try to you know level the playing field or we can you know seek help of these apps so for example i'll give you this example because this is quite close to my 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 experience when i first applied for a fulbright grant in 2015 uh i made it to the interview and <laughs> because i had never interviewed for a grant or i had no role models or i had no mentors i didn't know what they they were going to ask me during the interview and how to prepare for the interview you know i had absolutely no idea and i just went there i didn't have a jacket on no tie and nothing and you know i just went there with in a pair of khakis and white shirt and and I mean, there were very simple questions. Tell us about yourself. Why are you interested in this? And I couldn't answer them perfectly. You know, not perfectly, but I couldn't answer them appropriately because I didn't know that kind of you know environment or what the protocols of an interview were for a grant like that. So I couldn't make it. I, <laughs> I mean, I got rejected in the interview. The next year. i applied again and th- the next time i had a fairly decent idea <laughs> of what was going to be asked so i prepared answers to those questions and you know i had memorized them and then then i, I wore a suit and a tie and you know everything the whole nine yards and then i got the grant and when chat gpt came along the one of the first things i did with this with chat gpt was to ask it to give me 10 questions that could be asked in a fulbright grant interview and it gave me gave me 10 questions and seven out of those questions were actually asked of me in the interview now had i had i had access to to chat gpt or to like that in 2015 i would have been much better prepared yeah yeah so it's like but but then it has you have to chat gpt or artificial intelligence these are like tools you know and you have to be you have to know how to use a tool and you have to have a good head over your shoulders to to understand the limitations of the tool also you know i'm going to synthesize what you said um the biases are baked into the system and we can't necessarily overcome them but we can for sure utilize it and work on making the utilization of these products more available for people to at least try to level the playing field yeah um, absolutely you're absolutely right and that's why i i, I <laughs> that's why i often say that hey, hey people are worried about chat gpt but i'm happy this is good this is a good thing there, there is potential anything that helps me is a good thing you know right and you know your story reminds me of my experience similarly in academia 
And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, whoa, so many of us have similar experiences. I remember as a 17 year old, I had a college interview. I applied to this university and I, at this point, I'm a first generation immigrant. And I, I like on, I knew of Ivy league universities and obviously like that was a goal, like a dream to like attend one. And I go to this university. I was so privileged to have this interview. And I was so excited. My entire family was so excited that like, I have this interview to even like go talk to them. Um, it was like the second line in the process to get admissions. Like they had obviously looked at my app, but they thought I was capable enough to like interview with them in person. This was 2013 and I show up 17 year old, like clearly not the best dressed, not the best um, prepared for the interview. Similarly, I had no idea what they were going to ask me. I was just, I, I went and just it was just myself and they were like oh what do you you know what do you want to do here blah 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 all like standard questions and at that point I didn't have another mentor or role model who had faced a similar situation and could tell me what to expect in a in a university interview like that yeah I googled and went to Sudanoc Doctors Network and read it but that's not that's not the same there people usually are venting and you're not getting like helpful interview tips I guess I mean you can but um yeah, that, that your experience reminded me, like it transported me back to that feeling of being like, whoa, I am here and I'm looking around and I'm clearly not prepared for this. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the, as you may have experienced yourself, the questions are fairly standard and there is a fairly standard protocol protocol of answering those questions. You know, you package those questions, uh, answers and uh, if you go to a mentor and if you go to any mentor worth their salt, they will tell you that, you know, you draft your answers, then you practice them and then you edit them and th then you make them punchier. You delete any words that don't roll off your tongue easily. You know, these are all very important things, but these are this is like the hidden curriculum of academia. And some of, so I'll give you an example. Now imagine you have a daughter or you have a son. I have a son who's going to be 14. Uh, the first time I went outside of Pakistan was when I was 18. I was 20 years old and I I was in the Naval Academy and we had they, they took us out for a, for a visit to Turkey. After that, I went out of Pakistan when I won the grant for right now to go to you know Binghamton University. And then I came to Denmark. When I went to the US, my son was eight. Now, look at his his worldview and look at my worldview. When he was eight, he grew up in, in the US for five years. He has a fairly good understanding of how racist the US society is because he was called the N-word a lot of times, like on a daily basis. This is important cultural knowledge, you know. This is very important cultural knowledge that I don't have or I had through my son, yeah. And then he went to a public school in the U.S. Then he um, moved around with us, went to different parts of upstate New York because he did competitive swimming. Then he made friends with like dozens of nationalities, and his worldview, see, imagine the kind of worldview he has. And then he came to Denmark and now he he goes to a European, uh, a British, um, no, uh, a private English medium school. Yeah. Because he doesn't understand Danish and, you know, all the whole curriculum was in Danish in a public school. Now, imagine this kind of well-traveled, rich background with both of the parents. My wife has a, my wife was a, was a lecturer in Pakistan. I have a PhD. And now imagine his worldview and imagine my worldview when my father was a high school graduate, both my father and mother. So, you know, there is this, you know, first generation, second generation, the difference is, is very real. And it doesn't feel real un unless you you experience it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, I could go on and on and on about it. Uh, 
this hits so close to my home. And you also mentioned, you know, the hidden curriculum of academia. And I think the more I continue to be in academic spaces and research and medicine, I, this is why like I value mentorship and talking to individuals like you so much, because I think it just brings so much visibility to, like you said, the hidden curriculum. Um, it kind of helps people like us, minoritized and marginalized populations to like take advantage of the tools out there. Um, this is amazing. Thank you for this conversation. Of course, absolutely. And uh, I, I was, the other day I wrote a paper on, not a paper, uh, a thread on a systematic review because somebody had asked me some, uh, you know, uh, a colleague works on on an app that is meant for systematic review. And they reached out to me and he said that, you know, we, we are, doing this major overall and we would like your feedback and you know people want a fresh set of eyes so i said i'd be happy to do that but then i realized that i have absolutely no idea what a systematic review is <laughs> so i went and i i downloaded an article and i read that and then i thought that okay let me uh, experiment with it so i ran you know i took notes in zotero and then i ran those notes through through chat gpt to synthesize and I didn't use ChatGPT's, you know, recommendations because I, I write my threads myself and I'm very, you know, I have a very strict sort of, you know, uh, writing structure. And ChatGPT doesn't follow that, so that doesn't gel with me. Anyway, so I, I put up the thread and I said that, you know, I'm a literary scholar, I don't know much about this, but um, I learned about it and below is what I learned. And somebody, a lot of medical librarians, they got really pissed. They said, why are you writing this? I mean, this is so uh, outdated. And they were, I mean, they, they really took the thread to town. And in one of the comments, a librarian said that th there were two people uh, talking to each other in tweets. And one of, the, one of them said, this dude fills up my timeline with self-promotion. And I reply to that. I, I don't usually engage with the hateful comments, but if I see a disagreement and I, I I see that, you know, my voice is missing from the conversation that I started, then I go and, you know, chime in. So I, I told that person, I said that I'm a first generation scholar of color uh, from a working class family from a third world country. And you're judging me from judging me for promoting myself thing is if i don't promote myself nobody else will and if you it's, don't promote I, yourself oh, like other people like you won't see themselves that they could be like you one day yeah absolutely i mean it's it's like to have somebody that you know you could you know this is this is a really big luxury to have a role model that after which you can you know model your career path you may even deviate from that path but at least having somebody to look up to means a lot you know it means a lot yeah absolutely so that doesn't work for for folks like us <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, an advisor once said um you can be what you can't see which is why a lot of first generation paths are hard because you're kind of walking on a path that hasn't been lit before you, like people like you before. Um, very yeah, interesting. I'll give you this example. You mentioned, you mentioned Ivy League. You know, I, I'll give you an example of the worldview, the difference in the worldview of me and my son. In 2019, I went to Harvard because I was, um, I took a, I went to attend a summer program at Harvard um, Institute for World Literature. So I was in Binghamton and Binghamton has this affiliation with Institute, Institute for World Literature at Harvard. And you know, every summer people from all over the world and universities, they go to this institute. And I took my son and my wife there. It was the hottest summer, like in the written history of Boston. <laughs> so, and, and, and during the summer, we went there and I went there with this idea, preconceived notion of this being an Ivy League and, you know, top university in the world. And when we were walking in the Howard Yard, my son said that I don't think this is a very well-kept place. He said that, you know, this place looks dirty because he could see the construction work that was going on and all the, you know, mud and, you know, puddles of water that, that were there. I was standing right there 
my eyes could not see those puddles because I was so enthralled by the prestige. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Look at the difference in the worldview. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, I have goosebumps right now. This is an amazing conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and he said, when I said, you know, uh, when I said, you, you should aim for going to Harvard. And then he said, yeah, okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> see, that wasn't see, an see option the, for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, see um, the kind of, you know, nonchalance. Yeah, so that nonchalance was not an option for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> moving forward, what are some ethical issues or implications that you see or that you're potentially concerned about using these apps? Um, we mentioned earlier in the conversation about using it for not content, but organization, which is obviously very different than copy pasting than synthesizing something that like doesn't mesh with your voice, mesh with your writing voice. Um, yeah, what anything that you see in the horizon as far as like ethical issues go? Yeah, I mean, my my personal take on ethical or ethicality or ethics is that ethics is something, we live in a capitalist world and ethics is something that you afford you know, you have to be able to afford ethics. I can afford ethics now because I live in the first world and I have, I I get decently paid, I can afford ethics. Um, and by ethics, I mean that if you were to, if somebody were to tell me that, Mushtaq, don't download this book because it is from a pirated site. And I would say that, yeah, that's a good idea. I will not download from from here and I will actually go and buy because I want to support the author. That's an option for me because, you know, I can buy and I have the, the power to buy also, money to buy. But I remember it very clearly, um, vividly. Ten years ago, I was in Pakistan. Um, I didn't have money to afford to be this ethical. And I didn't have, even if I did have money, there was no way for me to buy because the book was not available anywhere around me. So you order it you know, overseas. So, and if somebody told me that Mishtaq, there's a website where you can get pirated books, I would go and I used, and, and, and I did, you know, and like hundreds of thousands of, you know, scholars in the global South. So the ethics is something that you and I decide together, you know, or the society decides together. So, the the ethics the committee on the publishing ethics they have decided that if you use an ai app like generative ai uh, app like chat gpt you can use it to improve the structure and readability of your of your writing and you can then you will have to disclose that you know you, you use this app yeah but the only limitation they've they've imposed upon this usage is that you cannot say that this paper is written by Mushtaq Bilal and ChatGPT. You know, ChatGPT cannot be your co-author. That's because ChatGPT doesn't have a, a presence that could be held accountable. So a large language model cannot be held accountable, cannot be sued, for example. So, you know, or cannot be, um, you know, if it gets sued, it can't pay, you know. So that's the kind of limitation. Whereas if I were to get sued, I will have to, you know, appear in a court or court of law, you know, do the, go through the, undergo the procedure. So this is a limitation, I think, that um, the Publishing Ethics Committee has imposed. And, you know, Elsevier, publishers like Elsevier and Cambridge University Press and many other publishers, they have followed suit. So, and it, and then again, you have to realize that these publishers, there is there is a, one way of looking at it, at it is that that they are serving the community, you know. The, if you go like really into the into the into the Protestant roots of capitalism, so you could say that the publishers are serving the community, the scientific community, and that's why we're getting paid. But you and I and you know everybody's aunt knows that publishers are not just serving the community, they're making a lot of money also. So it's not so much as serving the community, so much as exploiting the community. Yeah. So the ethics, the debate here is that 
publishers would do whatever will maximize their profit margins. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. the ethics, so the ethics is not the debate around ethics is not as as innocent or as uh, simple as it may seem. That you know, hey, we talk about you know generative AI using usage of generative AI is unethical. What is unethical? What is ethical then? You know, um, Harvard uh, openly admits that it prefers legacy, you know, students. So is that ethical? I mean, how is that ethical? How is that, you know, democratic? It it isn't, but you know, this is the kind of world we live in. So the I, the debate around ethics of it, I don't find it like. I mean, my PhD is in comparative literature, and I did my you know my my dissertation is on on the kind of community that got imagined you know in and through the Urdu novel, and I very deeply invested in the debate about ethics and morality especially in, in the colonial context. But it's not simple, you know? So it's more than what you had ordered. <laughs> I, and now I'm realizing that your question may not have, you know, uh, foreseen this kind of dimension. Yeah. And that's why, yeah, and that's why I I get a little wary of these simplistic, you know, takes on, on that publishers and, you know, writing teachers offer that, you know, we want, don't want teachers, students to, te to cheat. Yeah, well, to my mind, a student's cheating is not unethical. To my mind, to me, what is unethical is to force somebody to learn something that they don't want to. This is a highly unethical thing to do. But why do we do that? You know, it's the schools, in, I mean, my son doesn't want to learn writing. Yeah, for example. And But I'm like, no, your dad has a PhD in literature. You have to learn writing. Why? There's this this is no ethics. Yeah, you uh brought up a really good point. Uh number one, a couple good points there. You have to afford ethics. Um, not everybody has the privilege to afford ethics. That's yeah, I, I definitely think that the question when I prepped the question, I was thinking more in the lines of Hmm, there's a lot of, you know, journalism and talks with headlines about Chad GPT, potentially students using it to plagiarize their college papers. Um, my brother who's in high school talks about kids using it for like their AP language papers. Um, and there are like now tools that can go and give teachers indications about if the paper, the piece was written by uh, an algorithm. So I think the question was more about like plagiarism. Yeah. Um, any thoughts uh, you have on that? On, on plagiarism, I think the, the there's a difference between you know plagiarism and the usage of generative AI. If I'm using generative AI, I'm not plagiarizing anybody's text. There is no source that I could attribute my text to. Yeah, point, if, yeah. it's one it's one thing that. If Raisa Kabir has written a paper and Mushtaq Bilal goes and takes a paragraph out of your paper and then without attribution, proper attribution, uses the text as if it's mine, mm -hmm. that is plagiarism. Yeah, I think plagiarism is the root uh, word for plagiarism is a Latin word that literally means kidnapping, Latin or Greek word. Yeah, kidnapping or stealing. So... This is this is stealing. This is kidnapping somebody else's work and you know using it as your own. This is plagiarism, of course. But large language model like ChatGPT has immense amount of text. So who should I attribute it to? Now that's a question. So that I don't think is plagiarism. Uh, but what I would say, what I'm not interested in this part of the conversation. What I'm interested in is. Go, is something that goes deeper than this. I'm interested in knowing why is there such a huge demand for among students to to find a shortcut like like ChatGPT. Why is that? That demand is is there because the writings, the way we teach writing is is I don't like the way we teach writing, and then. So uh, think of it this way. Not every student in your high school would go and play ice hockey. 
or football or rugby or baseball yeah but every student will be made to write the five paragraph essay why see what mm-hmm. i mean so not yeah. every student in your high school went to the band not everybody right. played the saxophone not everybody played the drums or sang in the choir but everybody has to is made to do the right. writing that i think is the fundamental problem students should have a basic understanding of writing because you know they should be able to uh, do the transactions in in the bank you know they, they should be able to live like a productive citizen in the society that's understandable but not every every student has to go and read hamlet or shakespeare why i mean this is madness i, mean, I, I think i have a phd the, in literature <laughs> i think all of the ap language ap lit students right now all of the english students from every corner of the world is agreeing with you right now like why do we have to learn this but no makes Absolutely. sense makes sense like i think the process a writing process in itself can be so mystical can be so hard there are so many analogies of writing the five paragraph essay that is i'm traumatized by forever like the burger you put the bun you put the lettuce like what how is, <laughs> how is a burger related to me writing this essay yeah for sure like it's it's definitely very it's a mystical process and i think that's what students find daunting and that's also what i find daunting here is something you and i you were interested in talking to me in doing this podcast yeah because you wanted to this is right. something that nobody is making you uh, you want to do this and then you made time prepared a question you wrote it yourself uh, you scheduled it you know there's a lot of work that has gone into it in, into this meeting that we are having it you know no and nobody is making you do it why are you doing this because you see the value in having a conversation like this and if we show the students that there is a value in yeah. doing such kind of writing some people will genuinely want to Absolutely. learn writing yeah if if i tell you if i tell somebody that hey you learn writing i i sometimes i write about it that learn to write a simple declarative sentence and you can make a thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars a year it's good good money yeah yeah if you just learn how to write a simple declarative sentence without trying to sound smart or funny or satirical or anything simple declarative sentence like it is raining outside this table is made of wood these are very simple sentences but i'll tell you as a writing teacher and as a writer myself it's very hard to resist the temptation to sound clever yeah absolutely there is this i i mean i i take writing as a very different kind of a process and you know my take is a little different maybe that's why people find it useful <laughs> i i know for sure that's why i definitely have been finding it useful um all right i know we are nearing the end of our conversation here um so i wanted to end the conversation on before i ask you one last fun question but before we get to the fun part i wanted to ask you about just give you the space to talk about your services that you have for academic writers and uh what that entails and why should somebody take a take your tutorial yeah that's a good question uh and i have a tutorial that's called become an efficient academic writer uh, with ai apps it's available at efficientacademicwriter.card that's with c a r r d.co and i have another tutorial that's zotero tutorial because you know a lot of people ask me um to put my you know uh, all the tips on zotero in a in a tutorial so the main tutorial that i have is that's i think that's being used by more than 1200 people in universities across the world from the us to brazil to turkey to denmark india pakistan nigeria many other countries um and in universities like you know um harvard and stanford and oxford and um, you know mm-hmm. columbia so why should one buy this tutorial or use this t- tutorial the the idea here is the tutorial will teach you will the tutorial will not teach you how to reinvent the wheel you already know, you already know that the tutorial is meant for a 
writer who wants to optimize the writing process for mm. speed. So it has two tips like the one I told you earlier about chat GPT, writing a zero draft and mm-hmm. um, running it through chat GPT. And then it, the tutorial has like several other prompts for chat GPT and it has very lengthy, not lengthy, but it has really detailed workflows with screenshots and detailed instructions, uh, how to do, you know, how to integrate research rabbit with Zotero to, you know, to make, to speed up your literature mm-hmm. review. And then how to take notes within Zotero so that you don't have to, uh, you don't have to link your citations to your bibliography. It gets automatically linked. And then when you have to prepare your bibliography, you don't spend three days on it. You just press, you know, one button and all your bibliography is is ready. So these are like, you you are already preparing a bibliography and you probably do it manually. And Mm -hmm. it takes you a lot of time, but the tutorial will teach you how to do it in like five seconds. Yeah. Awesome. That would save a lot of time. I'm yeah, definitely that is the purpose. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm definitely gonna check it out for myself. Um, just like your earlier tidbit about like using chat GPT for like organizing my thoughts, like, oh my gosh, like I'm gonna check that out. But I briefly looked at your website and I saw the reviews from other people and all these other academic people, and I saw people from medicine and then I'm like all right okay people do find this useful um so definitely worth the hype um yeah so I, the- I yesterday I did this talk at um the university um university of southern Denmark my university's um, department of molecular endocrinology so okay. I had no idea what they did and I can't even spell endocrinology <laughs> <laughs> but apparently they they found the talk very useful so Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think in the academic rigorous writing, the whole rigorous process of learning science, I think writing can sometimes be like a second thought. But I personally find that's what I struggle with. I, yeah, I struggle with science, too, but like not as much as I do with writing. So um, I'm excited to like use some of these advices that you have for us to see how it goes. And I'm definitely going to reach out to you and let you know how that goes. <laughs> um, oh, and then looking forward to your feedback. so the last question that I have is more of like a fun question what you know you are such like obviously a very busy individual and have such great ideas about writing and literature and that occupies a large headspace for you but other than that in just general life what brings you joy how do you keep your sanity any hobbies anything else you'd like to talk about (laughs) Oh, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> but what brings me joy? I, my my work ethic is very, you know, my, my work ethic is very Protestant. I have, you know, the idea, I think, of joy is for me somehow related to the kind of work that I'm doing. So, or I do, or anyone does. The idea of joy is like, you serve a community and the community rewards you in a certain way. And that's where your joy lies. Yeah. yeah. It, it's very Protestant Calvinist, you know, I'm, I'm I know the roots. I know <laughs> <laughs> I read about it. So th- that's why I know how, you know, how the, the wheels in my head turn. It's, it's very self um, self-aware. It's very self-aware. But other than that hobbies, I, that's a very difficult question. Hobbies. <laughs> I don't think I have a hobby. <laughs> I think the collective academic postdoc graduate world, all the students I think are being recognized right now because this is exactly how I feel when I go to any interviews and they ask me, so what do you do for fun? And I'm like, uh, after studying for eight hours and then working on research and working on extracurricular, what do I do for fun? Yeah, I think that lies in my work. I think I, I sleep for fun. That's what I do. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely right. But I, I would say one thing that um, you know, what that's something somebody like me takes for granted. But you know, while during during the conversation, it came to my mind that I, I actually do like um having a conversation with my son. 
for two reasons one is that he he doesn't take any prisoners he's like if he doesn't like anything and what i'm saying he disagrees he's just going to give it to me straight he's like hey you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> so and you know i i don't we don't keep that father son barrier you know between us so he's very good communi- communicator there and um, if i if he asks me something and that you know i want uh, can you explain this idea or a concept in math or science and then if if i do a good job then he will tell you then he will tell me that he'll say hmm that is a very good explanation and i think you can be a good teacher so <laughs> it's you know it's uh, and that i take very you know that's a very refreshing take i i really like talking to him because he because he doesn't take any prisoners and then i realized that that maybe i've not done a bad job as a father Aww. so you know that's yeah that that means a lot that is so wholesome oh my gosh thank you mushtaq that is such a mm. nice way to end this conversation i really okay. appreciate your time with us and for all of the advices that you have so many things you said like i mentioned during the interview has hit close to me hands down one of my favorite interviews i've done so thank you for taking the time to talk to us thank you risa thank you it was wonderful um, i had a lot of fun uh, doing this conversation mm-hmm.